Good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to go through several readings this morning, um, and we're going to start in Luke, and um, it's Luke chapter 10, um, and you'll find this on page 1041 in the Bibles that you have in the pews, and we're going to start at verse 38. So Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. We're going to turn now to Mark chapter 4 and this is on page 1005 and we're going to start here at verse 35. So Mark chapter 4 verse 35 on page 1005. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And now we'll turn to Mark 14, and this is on page 1020, and beginning at verse 32. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. We just had a wedding here last yesterday and the microphone was a bit glitchy, so hopefully it's not glitchy today. That's why I was just smiling to the back desk as it made that horrible sound. Welcome to church. It's good to be with you. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister. It's great to have you in the building if you're new, visiting or a regular. And of course, uh, happy Mother's Day to those mums in the building. I was recounting at nine at 7.45 that um, my second child told Emily, my wife, this morning as he gave her two choc chip cookies that one of them was for him. Um, It's the joy of being a mum, isn't it? Uh, We are thankful for the mothers in our life. Even those of us who haven't had a great experience with mums, we we have a sense of what it would be to have a good mum. And so we're thankful for that gift when it comes. This morning we're uh, um, Continuing a series we started last week, we're doing all through May, thinking about work, rest and retirement, these, these, these parts of our life which we spend, well, they dominate our life. Actually, this, this category basically describes everything we do, uh, everything we do on this earth. And so it's a, it's a highly relevant topic. Um, last week we talked about work and we said to ourselves that work is good. Work is good. Although we have tainted it, work is itself good. I want this morning to think about rest. You know, in some cultures, work is so primary that people overwork regularly. In fact, in one culture, it's, it's well known that... It's well known that... Oh, that is really bad, Adam. I'm just going to use the pulpit, like, the pulpit mic. I'm going to use the pulpit mic. Wait, thanks. Uh, in one culture, work is so is so kind of overbearing. They actually have a word for people who die of overwork. So it's so common. Uh, it's slightly tragic. Perry Noble, one author, says though that this is not actually um, 
not, com not uncommon to all cultures. In fact, in Western culture, O work is the most rewarded addiction. The most, we, we kind of have a sense of this because we, would, we kind of are happy to describe ourselves as workaholics. There'll be a whole heap of other aholics that we wouldn't be happy to describe ourselves as an alcoholic, for example. But a workaholic, we would we'd describe negatively, but part of us takes pride in this. Uh, and yet the reality is that most of us do have the sense that we're running on empty a lot of the time. And I want to say that that intuition, that instinct, uh, is points to something the Bible actually constantly tells us, which is that rest is good. Last week we said work is good, but the counterbalancing message we also want to hear is that rest is good. Rest in its right proportions and with its right shape and focus is a very good thing. And the Bible holds rest very highly. Uh, first of all, God himself rests. Uh, we learnt last week he spends six days creating, but then he takes the seventh day and rests, not because he is deficient and needs to be filled up, but because he's modelling for creation the goodness of resting, of taking a moment to pause. And that model is then replayed in the commandments. In Exodus 20, God commands the Israelites, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor any animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Now the Ten Commandments were commandments God gave the Israelites to shape their life, to say this is the way a good life, a fulfilling life is lived. And one of those commandments is this commandment to keep a Sabbath, a day of rest, a couple of things to note. First of all, the Sabbath affects not just like the householder, but he, he, his whole family, sons or daughters, male or female servants. It's not just for free people. It's not like God said, oh, look, you need to take a rest, so get your, your house servants and slaves to work for you. No, everyone requires rest. Everyone requires rest. And even the foreigners, it's not just a blessing and a requirement for Israel, it's actually a requirement for all of creation. And it's not just foreigners, it's animals as well. God is saying, actually, rest is good, rest is necessary, rest is required as part of who you are as creation. But the Old Testament actually takes the, the, the question of rest even further. And it says that rest is not just good for you physically, it's good for you spiritually in terms of your relationship with God. So in Ezekiel 20, as a side note, in your booklets, at the end of the Gap Group study, I think it's page four or five, there is these things called weekly readings, and uh, each day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we've kind of marked out readings. So if you're someone who's looking to get into the Bible and read regularly, those might be passages to read through the week, and there's some questions that go with it. Uh, one of those weekly readings, Ezekiel 20, and in that, God is talking about the failure of Israel at a particular time in their history, uh, where they went off to worship other gods. Right? Their spiritual health had really fallen apart. And at the heart of that passage, God says, the reason why in that situation their spiritual health had, had deteriorated so badly is they desecrated the Sabbaths. That's his language. They des in other words, they did not value the place of, of this, this God-ordained rest in their life. So interestingly, we, you might 
be willing to accept that rest is helpful for you physically. That's not an unusual message to hear from, you know, your your, your physician. But it's true, the Bible says, that rest also affects you spiritually and is useful and good for you spiritually to take a day off. And and this is is an understanding of humankind the Bible brings about, which is very helpful, that our physical welfare and our spiritual welfare and our emotional welfare are all intertwined. You cannot just deal with one aspect of your life and hope that the whole of you is dealt with. And actually, when you deal with one aspect of your life well, it impacts another aspect of your life. There's a real intertwining there. And so God says rest is good because of how you're created, not just physically, but spiritually. And yet the truth is that for many of us, we struggle to rest, to have that refreshing rest, you know, to have that really, that really good night's sleep. In fact, there was a study done recently which said 35% of people don't have a good night's rest. They don't have a good night's sleep. That means there's probably a person in your row, unless it's in by yourself and it's, well, maybe it's you, <laughs> who didn't sleep well last night. I think that's not actually, un, that's not an unbelievable figure. There, many people struggle to sleep at night and it might be a physiological condition. But I suspect for a lot of us, there are other issues going on there. There are other reasons why we can't sleep well at night, because we can't rest well. And so the question is, what does it look like to rest according to the Bible? What does it really look like to rest? Well, rather than telling you what it looks like, let me talk about three errors that we sometimes make, three ways that our rest goes wrong, and that actually will give us a a, a different picture on what rest looks like, particularly in relation to the Bible. And that's why we have those three little vignette stories read from the Bible today. That's not normally how we read the Bible in church. Often we spend our time in one book or one section of the Bible and work through it because that's helpful. Every part of the Bible has something to say and we don't just always pick and choose. But I picked these stories because I think they all tell us, um, uh, they're all part of this overarching story on work and rest and they're helpful to reflect on. The first error I think we can make, and if you're a note taker or you're following along in the booklet, you'll see there's a bit of an outline for this week's sermon. The first error that we can make is that we actually rest at the wrong times. <laughs> we rest at the wrong time. Uh, and this, the story of the last, the last little vignette, the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's captured actually in that little stained glass window over there, you may know the events, you know, he's there. That's where Jesus is praying in the garden, you know, not my will but your will, Father. You know, just before he's arrested and taken first to trial and then ultimately to the cross, Jesus is praying, he takes his disciples, he takes his closest confidants with him. He says, come with me and pray a while. He wants their support. He's feeling overwhelmed, we're told, in the Bible at this moment in his life. And he wants his friends to pray with him. And of course, famously, every time he checks up on them, they've fallen asleep. Don't know, if you're someone who's a prayer, this is not an uncommon experience. Uh, I've been known to fall fall asleep in Bible studies. In fact, at one point in time, I remember I fell asleep in a Bible study and the reason that the prayer time ended was because I started snoring. There's no way to come back from that, actually. You can't just keep praying. 
Um, we understand. We understand. But, there's, but there is a sense in which the, the, this is a deeply inappropriate response at this point in time, isn't it? The story of Jesus' life has been uh, travelling in a crescendo to this moment. The disciples must be aware that something very significant is going to take place. They've just had the Last Supper. Jesus has talked about betrayal. Um, they've gone into this garden. They're singing. They must have a sense of, oh, something ominous. Rooms. Jesus says, come with me. Pray with me. He's overwhelmed. They fall asleep. Not once, though, but three times. And it reminds us of our tendency sometimes to put our rest ahead of the work that we need to do. Sometimes, actually, sometimes it's the wrong time to rest. You know, if you're, a, if you're a young parent, for example, and your child wakes up at night and they're sick, you, you cannot sleep. That is, that is a time when you must work. Your child has a, a dirty nappy. You can't say, I'm sorry, I'm taking two hours out here. I'll come back to you later. Uh, first of all, they won't let you do that. But also, that's, there's something inappropriate about that. Consider that in contrast to a cultural mindset of rest which talks about rest as me time, where we talk about taking time out for myself. But sometimes, actually, that's not appropriate, that mindset. See, because sometimes work, we're called to work and rest is not appropriate in that space. One of the errors we make is that we rest at the wrong time. You know, you might come home from work, you've had an extraordinarily busy and stressful day. What you actually long for is just, you know, a quiet half an hour. But of course you come home and the household is crazy and your spouse has been kind of labouring hard at home. They're looking forward to your support. It's inappropriate to call on rest at that moment. Rest. Sometimes we rest at the wrong time. That's the first error we make. The second error, though, when we're thinking about rest gone wrong is that we think about rest just as a physical thing and we fail to tie it to our condition with God. This is a constant challenge for us in our world. Our world fails to tie our condition to God. We often think of ourselves purely in material terms, purely in terms of our material prosperity or poverty, but the reality of the Bible, and this is why I think this is why I think the Bible is so helpful for us. It constantly reminds us of the diversity, actually, of our our, our lives and our experience. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, how does he respond when the disciples fall asleep? Come on, my friends, stir each other up, stand up, then you won't fall asleep. Prod each other, you know, pray out aloud. He doesn't have doesn't have a whole whole list of tips for them to stay awake in this moment. I mean, he says, watch, but he also says, and pray. Watch and pray. Because actually, rest is not just a physical thing, it is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. You know, we know this as well, because you can be, you can have the busiest day, you can be physically exhausted, right? And yet you go to bed. I have this experience sometimes. You go to bed, you might actually crash, but then you get woke up for some reason, and then you lie awake in bed for hours. It's not because, it's not because you're not physically exhausted. 
It's because your rest is determinant on more than just your physical reality. You're lying awake and these questions are going through your head. Am I, a, am, I, am I the husband or the mother or the employee that I should be? Am I the child that I should be? And it's those questions, those deeper existential questions, which actually keep us awake often. The second error we can make is that rest is not, we think that rest is just physical, but it's not. Rest is tied intimately to who we are spiritually. You can eat well, you can exercise well, and you can lay awake at night. But the third error is that sometimes we can just not envisage our life apart from work. We are so captured by a God of efficiency. And this is what stops us from resting. I don't know if you're like me. I, this is my particular challenge, actually. So, you know, I, I'm walking to the bus stop. I've got my, my headphones in and I'm listening to a podcast or an audio book or I'm on the, I'm on the train and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to an episode of something because you just feel like you need to absorb every moment of every day and make it efficient and productive. Is this your challenge? I wonder if that sometimes uh, reflects that we don't have a sense of who we are and being apart from doing. We, all, we are not someone unless we're doing something. If that is our mindset, that's going to kill our rest as well. Luke 10, the first of the stories which Stephen read for us, the two sisters, Mary and Martha, well-known story. Actually, if you hear at Easter, we um, talked about uh, these, two, these two sisters because they're the two sisters of Lazarus. These are, these are great women. These are, these are women who are very close to Jesus. And yet in this encounter, we learn a lot about it. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, but Martha, Martha's entertaining. She's busy. She's working the house. She's cleaning. She's preparing. She's cooking. And then she gets upset because her sister is not helping. I think many of us can, can understand where Martha's coming from in this moment. We've had a sibling who does nothing when it comes to pack-up time. But Jesus, interestingly, says, no, Mary has chosen the right option here. See, Martha is someone who cannot see a reason for her being in that house apart from her work. See, the reason she belongs in that house space is her labour, is her work. Her being is tied so intimately to her doing. There's a great story which is captured in the uh, uh, 80s film Chariots of Fire. It's a true story, actually, of two individuals. Harold, Eric Liddell, who's a, a Scotsman, he's also a Christian, and Harold Abrams, who's he's, um, an English guy, he's of Jewish faith. Now, these two guys, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a genuinely true story. You can go and watch the film if you want to. Harold Abrahams is the favourite. They've been head-to-head uh, contesting the 100 and the 200 metres of the Olympics uh, previously, over the four years leading to the 1924 Olympics, Abraham's is the favourite to win both races. Right? Uh, Liddell uh, famously chooses not to run the 200 because it's on Sunday. Abraham's l- runs the 200, but in a shock loses the race. If you know anything about Olympic timetabling, the 200 comes back then came before the 100. So the 100 metres was the last race, the last opportunity for him to win. He'd been, he had been the favourite. Everyone assumed he would win this race. 
And in the movie, there's this great moment where he's confronted by Liddell, who's kind of like his, his nemesis, not just in terms of the movie, but in life. Right? He's confronted by Liddell and, and the, the, the calm nature of who he is. And he says in this very, very revealing little monologue, he says, now in, our, in one hour's time, there he is, he's about to run the race, and he says, now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor. In other words, I'll look down the lane that I'm about to run, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? It's such a great moment in the story because it tells us about what is driving Abraham's, what has been driving Abraham's. And it's not a gold medal, so to speak. Right? It's, it, it, it's not a gold medal. It's not getting this thing around. It's something much more deep and meaningful for him. He says, 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. He's running to prove that he's worth something. And you know, the real problem with that is, is actually what he says, but will I? Will I win? But even more, he says later, now I am afraid to win. I'm afraid to win. Why is he afraid to win? He's afraid to win because he knows even if he wins that race, will his existence truly be justified? Will he truly be worth everything that people have been investing in him over the past three, four years? I mean, we know this this story just keeps reappearing. The great story of Pat Cash, if you know it, after he wins Wimbledon unexpectedly as a young man, and they find him in his room weeping after the tournament because he doesn't know where to go next. He's won this tournament well before he was meant to. What does he do with his life now? What is his existence? I think this is, this is why rest is often undone, actually, for us because of what we think about work. I remember a young couple, if you remember last week, I said to you that I used to look after a young adult congregation in a previous church. This young couple, great couple, loved Jesus, involved in church, you know, served people. They also just worked crazy hours. One was in marketing, others in corporate. They, they worked really crazy hours. Anyway, they planned this great trip. They'd only been married for a year and a half or two years. This was going to be their real celebration trip. They decided to go all through Europe, five weeks. It was all planned, mapped out. You know, they come back after their trip. They'd been gone for five, five weeks. I said, um, how's the holiday? I said, oh, it's good, but I'm feeling exhausted. I said, why? Jet lag? No, 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 no. I said, oh, I just came back and my boss is on, on to me about something and I just realised that they didn't finish the project that I left for them and this cl- I just got told that this client is really a frustrated with with the work that I left behind. You know, the problem was their work was their justification and their work wasn't up to it in the eyes of some people. And it meant, it didn't matter how good the holiday was actually, it all got unpicked in that moment. You know, they returned back to the office, it took them three days for all the value of that rest to go down the drain because their being was so tied to their doing. It's so tied to their doing. Ten lonely seconds, says Abraham, to justify my, my existence. But that's the, 
That's the story for many of us. And it's why it doesn't matter how much you pour into your physical welfare, you will remain drained at the core. You will be bitter, sad, tired, worn out, and maybe even lonely. How do you do that? How do you find real rest when... Because life is hard. I said this at at the wedding yesterday. Life is hard. So how do you find rest when life is always changing? When, When your circumstances are uncertain, how do you find rest? If if those are all examples of rest gone wrong, Jesus gives us such a great example of of good rest, and it's in that it's in the fourth this middle story that Stephen uh, read to us. It's from Mark four. Jesus is in a storm. One artist captured the picture like this. If you can see it from where you are, most people at the back because that's where the heater is today. I understand that. I love this picture, actually, because in it, the storm is real. A storm on the Sea of Galilee was, was, a, was a life-threatening experience in Jesus' time. And they would have been in, in a fairly small fishing boat. And the disciples were genuinely terrified, and rightly so, in this story. But Jesus, we're told, is asleep in the stern. He's asleep. I love, I love how the artist draws full attention to this. His head is on his arms, his eyes are closed, his body is relaxed... Every other character is straining forward in anxiety and fear. And yet Jesus is peaceful in the midst of chaos. That's actually the kind of rest that God wants for us. That's the kind of rest God wants. See, it's not rest which says, oh, I've sorted out all of your life's problems. None of them exist anymore, so go to bed. It's actually the ability to rest in the midst of the storm. That's what God wants for his people. And Jesus, actually, when Jesus comes to earth and lives as a man, he gives up some of his insights. There's things he doesn't know. I suspect in this moment in the story, he doesn't know, for example, whether all his disciples will live. He doesn't know that. But he can nonetheless sleep in this moment. He can get the rest that his body so requires. What's the key? Well, it's not just that Jesus rests well, of course. The Bible teaches us that real rest comes when we rest in Christ. And the story of Mary and Martha, the story of Mary and Martha actually unpacks this for us. Because there is Martha working away, seeking to find her sense of being in her doing, and there is Mary instead, seated at Jesus' feet. And this is what Jesus says to Martha. You expect him to say, Martha, thank you for all your labour. I appreciate it and I love you for it. He doesn't say that. He says, Martha, Martha. I mean, he says Martha, Martha because he loves her and that's his way of endearing the next comment to her. He says, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. He says, there are so many things here, but get your perspective right. There's actually only one thing that's important here. He says, Mary has chosen, sorry for the typo, what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What has Mary chosen? (laughs) She's chosen Jesus. 
she's come to understand that the Lord himself is in her living room. And so everything else doesn't matter in comparison to this. This is the great thing. This is the great thing. You know, I, I, um, I was talking to a, um, a young guy the other day. He's got family. He's quite interested in Jesus, actually. In fact, he, he wants his kids to know Jesus, so he sends them to Scripture. I said, mate, you should come to church with us. He said, oh, look, I, I would, but Sunday is my family day. It's, my time, you know, it's, the, it's the only time in the week we get to spend together. You know what Jesus would say? You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. He'd say, your family is good, but I am better. Why is he better? Why is Jesus genuinely better there? Well, Because, first of all, Jesus knows the anxieties of life. You know, Gethsemane, Gethsemane's story is the reminder. Jesus knows the full extent of the anxieties of life. He's not telling you just get over it because he doesn't get it. He gets it. He gets it, right? He's experienced it. And the cross is him not just experiencing it so that he can upskill himself on the human experience, but so that ultimately he can deal with the great anxiety of our life, which is death. And Jesus' resurrection says, that anxiety is dealt with. Are you uncertain about your worth and value? No, not with the cross, you're not. The Lord loves you. Are you anxious about the, about the impending doom of death that, that hangs maybe a year or two years ahead of you? No, not with the resurrected Lord, you shouldn't be. Jesus Christ. See, the reason Mary has chosen the right thing is that Jesus who sits in the room understands anxiety, the real anxieties of life, and has dealt with them by giving himself ultimately on the cross and rising to new life. And that's why Jesus can say at the end of this, it will not be taken away from her. Everything he promises will be given to Mary. That's why he's better. I have this picture in one of the kids' rooms and it's a, and on it uh, is this Bible verse from Luke 10. It says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. He is pleased to give you his kingdom. He is pleased to go to the cross for you. He is pleased to offer himself for you at great cost. He is pleased to endure the greatest in pain and suffering so that you might have the kingdom. If you have that deep assurance in your life, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And it will not be taken from you. Then you will worry less about the things around you. You will worry less about the things around you. And you know, Tim Keller, he's a, a New York pastor, he says this helpfully. He says, if we can experience gospel rest, that is that rest that comes from sitting at the feet of Jesus, right, in our hearts. If we can experience gospel rest in our hearts, if we can be free from the need to earn our salvation through our work, because Christ has done it for us, of course, 
we will have a deep reservoir of refreshment that continually rejuvenates us, restores our perspective and renews our passion. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, if you have that deep rest, you can go back to the six days of work and you can be, you can be joyful in it, you can be effective in it, you can be passionate in it. You will not work out of bitterness. You will not work out of fear. You will not work out of anxiety or resentment because the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Let me pray for us. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wondrous gift of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and for the deep assurance that your word never fails, that your promises are always sure and the things that Jesus has said he will deliver will be given to us. Heavenly Father, would your Holy Spirit drive that truth into our hearts afresh this week so that we would rest well and labour with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.